morning, everybody. It's good to see everybody here this morning. Um, the reason why I've been wearing a mask this morning is just because I've got a bit of a cold and all the boys are loaded with the cold. But I have tested myself and apparently I don't have coronavirus, so I guess that's one good feature about it. But still, um, I don't want to share my cold with anybody. So, uh, as Deduzzi said, we're turning um, this morning to Romans and continuing off the last part of Romans chapter 3 and into Romans chapter 4 and thinking about what the Apostle Paul has to tell us there. And what he's going to be talking about in this section is a lot about pride and boasting. And indeed, we, we do live in a world of intense pride, where people feel, feel very proud of themselves and all that they've accomplished, and we feel that we are a good deal better than a lot of other people around us. And psychologists, uh, they've studied people's sense of pride and uh, studied people, people's perceptions of themselves and each other. And what they find is that again and again, we're very good at estimating how kind or how generous other people are likely to be in different situations. So if you ask people, you know, how much money are people likely to donate to this charity? We're pretty good at estimating what they're going to give. But when it comes to ourselves, we're actually, uh, we, we overestimate ourselves a little bit too much. And this is fairly consistent. We think that we are more kind, more generous, more righteous than everybody else around us. And this, this bias that's built into us that makes us very proud of ourselves that we think we're a lot better than everybody else and indeed it's not even individuals as a society we like to think that we are better than a lot of other societies and politicians they they really do like to make the most of this and say as a society you know we've done tremendously because of our indomitable national spirit we have conquered coronavirus we are we are doing far better than so many other countries and it's about trying to inculcate this sense of pride amongst everybody and it seems like everywhere we turn we are faced with this sense of us being great people and able to do things that many other people cannot do and yet the church of Jesus Christ the place where God meets with his people is the one place where pride has to be left outside the front door it cannot come into the church of Jesus Christ because it's not about what we have accomplished, it's about what God has accomplished. And as God meets with us here in God's house, as the scripture calls it, not the building, but the people gathered, God's house, God meets with us to present his work, what he has done for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're forced to acknowledge that we ourselves have contributed nothing. We are empty. We are completely empty-handed and at God's mercy and grace. And so after Paul has explained in Romans chapter 3 verses 21 to 26 that God has provided righteousness for us as a gracious gift, he then starts to explain that this is a message that shatters our pride. It gets rid of any grounds for boasting. And so let's then read what Paul has to say to us. And for the sake of connection, I'm going to read what Jim so helpfully expounded to us last week from verse 21. It's just because it flows on from verses 21 to 26 that I'm going to read from verse 21. And I'm reading from the ESV. And Paul, he writes, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God's put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he is something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And this is the word of the Lord to us this morning. And as we've read those verses that Jim covered for us last week, 21 to 26, one sentence in the Greek text, what strikes me and what has struck us as we were thinking about them is how God-centered those verses are. Again and again, Paul is pressing home the point, this is what God has done, this is what God does. God is the person who reveals his righteousness in the gospel. This righteousness from God has been revealed. And even though we fall far short of the glory of God, God is the one who then justifies us freely by his grace as a gift to us. And it is God is the one who has accomplished this by setting forth his son as a sacrifice, as a propitiation for our sins. He is the one who has done it. And God then is the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. And so again and again, God is the one we're thinking about. He does the work. And Paul is hammering that point home. And so after he's really hammered that point home, he comes in verse 27 to the conclusion, what then becomes of our boasting? It is excluded Paul says, completely and utterly ruled out. We've got no grounds for being proud of ourselves or boasting in anything that we contribute to this. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is the message of about, about God's work and what he has done to secure our salvation. And how does the gospel then rule out our pride or our boasting, asks Paul. He asks, is it because there's a law of works that we have to follow? He says, no, absolutely not. It's got nothing to do with the law of works. Because all that the law has done, the law of God has done, Paul has demonstrated, is never to help us become righteous. 
but to simply show how far we have fallen short. And so he says that boasting then is excluded by the law of faith. I think he's doing a play on words here. He's using this word law, and really he's thinking about it's the principle of faith. And what he's saying here is that the only law that really matters in being right with God isn't all of the works that you can accomplish. The only law that really matters, if you want to use that word, is the law of faith. It's the principle of faith. That's the thing that matters. That's the thing that is the crucial issue in whether or not we are put right with God. And so here's the first thing, then, that removes all of our ground for boasting before God or before each other. It's this idea that faith is the principle that puts us right with God. And then Paul clarifies that by summarizing in verse 28 when he says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. In other words, the very best works that we could do, obedience to the law of God as inscribed in the Old Testament, were we able to do that? Those very best works would never be enough to justify us or to put us right with God. Instead, Paul says that we're justified, we're put right by God, by faith. Now, at this point, we have to be a bit careful, don't we? Because some people think that faith is a kind of spiritual muscle that we exercise. Some people have got really strong faith, a really muscular faith. And other people, they've got a fairly weak sort of faith. And it's possible then to think about faith in that way. And some things are easy to believe. It's very easy to believe that God's going to provide food for us this afternoon because, well, we've probably seen in the fridge that there's food for us. And so it would require rather weak faith to believe that God's going to provide for us this afternoon. But then people would say that, well, you know, there's some big things that are really hard to believe. It'd be hard to believe that maybe God's going to heal you of a an incurable illness. It's really hard to believe that God's going to do some miracle in your life. And so that for that kind of thing, you need really big faith. You need really muscular faith. Uh, the problem with thinking about faith in that way is that it, it all comes down to us then. And not only are you then worried about whether or not your faith's strong enough for God to do anything for you, but then all, it all becomes just the same idea as works. It becomes something that we do. It becomes something that then focuses all the attention on us. And if somebody manages to get something out of God, well, it's because they've got great big faith and they've managed to manipulate God and, and get something from him. And, you know, subtly or not subtly, this kind of view of faith then strips the glory away from God and starts to layer it onto us. But in the Bible, that's not the way that faith is portrayed. Faith in the Bible is portrayed not as a big strong muscle that we've got, but faith is portrayed as a kind of seeing. Uh, it's not physical sight. We know that much because we look at Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1 and it says that faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance in what we do not see. So it's quite clear. Faith is about things that we don't see. But Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 27 says that Moses left Egypt and he wasn't afraid of Pharaoh. And it says he persevered because he saw him who is invisible. He saw God who was invisible. That's Moses' faith. He saw spiritual reality. Obviously, it doesn't mean that he physically saw God. It means that he spiritually 
caught a sight of what was real. He caught a sight of God and his goodness and greatness and magnificence. And then faith then isn't focused on me and how strong I am and how much I can believe, but faith looks outward to God and sees God and what he has done and how good and great God is. And when faith gets the sight of God, then that's all it needs. And another way that's been often uh, described as a good analogy for faith is the empty hand that reaches out to God. Not a strong arm grabbing onto God and manipulating God, but it's the empty hand that reaches out to God to receive from him what he's offering to us. And so whether then we describe faith as seeing or reaching out with the empty hand, that's the idea that Paul has got here. He's not trying to say that faith is something that we work up. No, he's saying that faith is simply us resting in what God has done. It's receiving what God has given to us. It's seeing what God has done for us. And he says that one is justified then by faith apart from works of the law. See, justification for the Jews was this definitive final verdict that God would pronounce at the end of the age when God wrapped everything up and vindicated his people. He would justify his people. He would declare that they were right. They were in the right with him. And now what Paul is saying is that this verdict of justification, we don't need to wait until the end to get this verdict pronounced over us. He's saying that here, right now, God can announce that verdict over you, that you are counted righteous by him. And Paul says that it's not on the basis of works of the law, not on the basis of the best things that you could do in obedience to God, but it's by faith. It's seeing what God has done for you. It's reaching out that empty hand and receiving this gift of righteousness that God is giving to us. That's how Paul describes it in verse 24. Justified freely by his grace. Or as the ESV puts it, justified by his grace as a gift. Because that's what God's righteousness is for us. And that then destroys all grounds for boasting or being proud. Because, you see, there's some things that are just too precious to buy. Some things that are just too important. Think of love, for example. If you try to buy love, people find that really distasteful. Uh, We call people gold diggers if they're going after somebody just for their money. And we recognize that it degrades the very concept of love if you try to buy it from somebody. It's it's not something that's for sale. And that's true of God's gift of righteousness as well. It's not something that you can just turn up to God with your best efforts and say, oh, I'll have some of that and see if you can get it at a bargain from God. That's to degrade the very concept of God's gift of righteousness. No, God's gift of righteousness is priceless and immeasurable and incomparable. That's how precious it actually is. And Paul then indicts his Jewish companions for trying to show up to God with their works of the law. He says you can't do that. And he would indict anybody else that tries to bring whatever other good works they would bring to God. Because 
even if you bring your best works, it only cheapens the idea of God's free gift of righteousness if you're going to try and buy it from God. And so the person most glorified in the gospel is not us. The person most glorified in the gospel is God himself. But he, because he comes to us, miserable and unworthy sinners, and he comes with this rich supply of grace and the free gift of righteousness to give it to us as a gift at no cost to us so that he can magnify himself and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then what Paul drives us to through this is to the heart of worship itself. And that's what we've been thinking about this morning as well when we've been singing and, and praying that we've got nothing to boast in except the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And true worship then comes about not when we think that we've contributed something or we think that we've got some part to play in it. True worship comes about when you realize that God has done everything. God has provided everything for us freely as a gift. And we simply have entered into God's grace. And then we worship when we boast not in ourselves, but in the God who has done the unimaginable for us. And the other thing then that Paul points out to remove boasting is the fact that Jews then are no better off than the Gentiles when it comes to receiving this gift of righteousness. So Jews can't say to the, say to the Gentiles that oh, they're better off that they've got grounds for boasting, they're just in the same position. And so he says in verse 29, is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised, that's the Jews by faith, and the uncircumcised, that's the Gentiles like us, through faith. You see, the Jews, they believed that they were special. And to some extent they were because God had entered into a special covenant relationship with them. He had announced that he would be their God and they would be his people. But somehow they thought that because they had been given the law that therefore they were, uh, you know, automatically in the right even though they didn't keep the law. And that was the problem. They couldn't just bank in the fact that they'd been given the law because they couldn't keep it. Then they were just in the same position as the Gentiles. They weren't any more righteous in God's sight. And Paul's been at pains to point out in the first few chapters that both Jews and Gentiles are under the condemnation of the law of God because they can't keep it. But then Paul asks the question, well, since God is the God of all humanity, God is one, is he not then the God of the Gentiles as well as the Jews? And if he is then the God of the Gentiles as well as the Jews, then he's going to put the Gentiles right with him in exactly the same way as he puts the Jews right with him. And it's not going to be by works of the law, because if the Jews couldn't keep it, then the Gentiles definitely aren't going to be able to keep it and make themselves right with God. So therefore, they've all got to be put right with God on the same basis. God's going to justify both the circumcised and the uncircumcised through faith. Now, Paul then, he deals with an objection in verse 31. He says, well, if God's going to declare Gentiles righteous by faith, does that then mean that the law is meaningless? And, well, people can do whatever they like. Gentiles can continue to live in their, their sinful ways. Is that the case? Well, Paul says, no, absolutely not. We rather uphold the law of God. Now, he's not going to expand in this thought here. He's going to park the idea and come back to it in 
chapters 6 through to 8 that Sid has so helpfully expounded for us in recent weeks. But he's just highlighting that idea here at this point. Just because we are justified, put right with God by faith, doesn't mean that we can then live whatever way we like. The law of God is important instruction for us. And actually, as we see in chapter 8, the righteous requirements of the law are fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. But for now, he just clarifies that thought. But returning to the main point then, what Paul is getting at here is that since Jews and Gentiles are equally justified by faith, then there's no ground for either group boasting before each other or before God. And this was actually really important for the people that Paul's writing to here, because if you remember in the introduction, I talked about the fact that the Jews and Gentiles in Rome, they had a little bit of problems in relating to each other. And certainly you see that really highlighted in chapter 14. The Jews, they would have kept the law and kept it carefully. And they would have looked down on the Gentiles and said, oh, look at you, you're having your bacon sandwich. This is offensive to God. And the Gentiles, they would have said, oh, we've grown out of those outdated principles. We live in the freedom of the spirit now. We can do whatever we want. And, and both sides were looking down on each other, thinking that they were a notch better before God because they did one thing or another, which was really indifferent to God in this era. Uh, and what Paul is doing then is he starts to lay the axe to the root of that idea. And he's saying, well, how are you justified before God? Are you justified by your keeping of the law? No, absolutely not. Both Jews and Gentiles are justified by faith. They're put right before God on the basis of receiving God's gift of righteousness. And as he does that, then he starts to undermine the basis upon which either side could actually boast or be proud in who they were or their background. Now, we don't have many Jew-Gentile problems in the church today. Certainly not here at Bensham, and I doubt very much in the UK. Uh, but we do have other problems, the problems of elitism and classism and racism or all different kinds of problems where people are proud of their background and think that something which is completely indifferent to God is something which then just makes them a notch better than anybody else in the church because of the way that they worship, then they are so much better before God. And what was Paul's answer to all this? Well, it's found here in these verses when Paul lays bare how we actually are put right with God. It's not on the basis of anything that we are or we do. He says, remember that you're justified by faith. It's a gift from God. You received it. God did all this work, and therefore you've got no ground for boasting in your background. And of Jews who'd got this special relationship with God, this covenant relationship with God described in the Old Testament, if they don't have any ground for boasting in their relationship, then any other basis for boasting before God in our background is completely ruled out. Because everything is a gift from God. And then, as Paul moves into chapter 4, he adds another nail in the coffin to the idea that we can boast about our good deeds in making us right with God. His Jewish companions that he's speaking to in this letter, they were very proud of their ancestors, rightly so, I think. People like Abraham and David, mighty men described in the scriptures. And 
Actually, many Jews had become so fixated in Abraham and, and the good things that he had done that they were convinced that the reason why God chose Abraham was actually because Abraham was a very righteous man. That actually God had chosen Abraham and, and set him apart because Abraham was more righteous than any other people of his day. And Paul is then going to explain to us that neither Abraham nor David were particularly righteous before. In fact, no, they were sinners before God. They were, Paul's going to say, they were ungodly. And that God justified them freely by his grace. And so he's saying, if it's going to help you to see this, then I'm going to show you that even people in the Old Testament, people that you think are great, weren't justified because of anything that they did. They were put right with God by faith. And so he begins with Abraham in chapter 4, verse 1, and he says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he is something to boast about, but not before God. In other words, not from God's perspective. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul's quoting here from Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6, and he's taking us back to that incident in Abraham's life. And you remember that Abraham, he was plucked from Ur of the Chaldeans, and God told him to leave his family and to go to the land that God would show him off. God chose Abraham from a pagan, idolatrous background. God revealed himself to him. Nothing about Abraham was good or noteworthy in any way. God took him and revealed himself to him. And then in Genesis chapter 15, God takes him out and shows him the night sky. He says, look at the stars and see if you can count them. And if you're able to number all of those stars, well, that's how many descendants you're going to have. That's how great you're going to become. And it says that Abraham believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness. In other words, Abraham saw God's promise, saw God's greatness and goodness towards him. And Abraham didn't do anything. He didn't contribute anything. Abraham simply held out the empty hand of faith and took God at his word. That's all that Abraham did. And that's then the point at which God says it was counted to him for righteousness. Now, again, it's possible to misunderstand that if we've got the wrong idea about faith. If we think in that faith is this big muscular thing that we do, then it would be possible to misunderstand what God is saying here as saying that because Abraham had this great faith and God said, oh, that's righteous, uh, and that's how Abraham was counted righteous. That's not the idea. Abraham does nothing. Abraham is a nobody. Abraham has a pagan background. And again and again in the story of Abraham, you see his failure and his, his unbelief at times. And so all that's happening here is not that God is saying, oh, your faith, that's righteous. No, God is looking at his faith and saying that because you're taking me at my word, Abraham, because you're holding out that empty hand, I'm going to give you my gift of righteous, righteousness. I'm going to count you as righteous. Not because he was righteous, but because God counted him as righteous. Did he deserve it? 
Absolutely not. Nothing in Abraham's life up to this point would even be suggestive that he deserved this gift of righteousness. Abraham was, as we're going to see in the next couple of verses, one that Paul describes as ungodly. So look at verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. That's people like Abraham. His faith is counted as righteousness. So it's not that Abraham did anything. Abraham was an ungodly person who is justified by God's grace as a gift. David's exactly the same. You look at verse 6, it says, David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And it quotes David in the Psalms. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. David, he knew what it was like to need God's forgiveness. David committed adultery. David committed murder. David did many things that he was deeply ashamed of. And he's not going to stand before God and say, look at me, I'm King David and all that I have done. No, David, he rejoices that God is the God who forgives him and counts, his, counts righteousness to him and doesn't count his sin against him. And so David's saying, look at these great believers. Look at these people in the Old Testament that we look up to and admire. They're actually sinners, says Paul. They were ungodly when God justified them. And search the Hebrew scriptures and see for yourself then, says Paul, that the people that God takes and justifies, it's not because they deserve it and God's giving them a payment that's owed to them because of their hard work. No, it's a free gift of grace. I think that's really instructive for us as we read the Old Testament, isn't it? Because sometimes we read the Old Testament and we're looking for heroes to emulate and don't get me wrong, there are heroes to emulate in the Old Testament. And there's people that did many things. That's Hebrews 11 that describes that for us. We look at their faith and we do want to emulate them. But more often than not in the Old Testament, what you get described for us is how fallen and how sinful God's people sometimes were. And the Bible doesn't gloss over people's failures, even the best of them, Abraham or David. It highlights their failures because the Bible wants us to know that they were sinners. It wants us to know that they needed forgiveness so that when we read the Bible and see them and we read it by Abraham that God counted his faith as righteousness, then, then we say, hang on, maybe there's hope for me here. Maybe there's hope for me that I, a sinner, like Abraham, can be justified freely as a gift. And that's why the Old Testament then describes for us the fullness of people so that we have hope that God can deal with us in grace as well. And when we see that, we then enter into the experience of David recounted for us here in the Psalms. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count sin. Blessed, joyful, happy, marked out by God's favor and kindness. That's what the word conveys. 
You see, David and Paul, they're excited about this grace. They, they're overflowing with joy that God would shower this blessing upon them, that God would not count them as guilty, but count them as righteous. And why? Because on the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ himself took the weight of our sin, took away our condemnation, so that God can be both righteous and the one who declares righteous, those who have faith in Jesus. And so then, the gospel of the crucified and risen Lord Jesus, it strikes at the heart of all of our self-righteousness and pride and boasting, and it knocks it all down, and it says it's just an empty facade, and makes us realize that if we are going to be right with God, then we need God to put us right. And if we are going to be put right with God, then there's nothing that we can bring. We just come to the Lord Jesus and to his cross and seek the free gift that he gives to us. And that's God's way of putting us right with him. Bowing in subjection to the Lord Jesus and receiving the gift that he gives. And where does that leave us? Does that leave us humiliated, defeated or ashamed? Absolutely not. Far from it because what Paul and David describe is the experience of blessedness, joy, because God has treated us in a way that we don't deserve. God has treated us as righteous, counted us as righteous, and has refused to count our sins against us. May God then help us to rejoice in this privilege and always boast only in him and in the cross. Let's pray. Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, our hearts spring up with thanksgiving this morning as we have spent this time in worship before the cross.